Well, good morning. Do encourage you now to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John, there towards the end of your Bible. I know you've been well served over the past three Sundays with Stu and Mark and Jeremy uh, preaching and ministering God's Word uh, to you and with you, and it's a blessing to have these brothers here and encouraged by them, uh, thankful for them. Do you want to turn your attention this morning, though, to 1 John chapter 2? Our text will be verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. 1 John 2, 28 through 3, verse 10. These are the words we'll be considering today from God's Word. 1 John chapter 2, I want to begin reading in verse 28. John writes, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you would now open our eyes to Not only see it, but to hear it, receive it, to be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've had the opportunity to visit the city of Manaus, Brazil, on many occasions now. Manaus is a unique city. That's a city of two million people that's located right in the center of the Amazon rainforest. In fact, really, the only two ways you can get there is by plane or boat. But when you're there, it's a normal city. It's got everything we would have in a city here. What uh, a lot of folks don't realize, though, is there on the city of Manaus, it sits right on the Amazon River. And right there where the city of Manaus sits is two rivers, really, that converge. Uh, One is the Amazon River that flows out of the mountains, the Andes Mountains of Peru. It's called the... Solomois in Brazil, but it's the Amazon River. And then you have another river called the Rio Negro, which is a black river that flows 
there as well. And they kind of merge right there where Manaus sits. What happens there is really a unique phenomenon. Right there at the city of Manaus where these two rivers converge is a place called the Meeting of the Waters. You have these two rivers, massive bodies of water that are flowing and they converge there at Manaus and from their point, that, that point forward continues on the Amazon. But these two rivers are very distinct. The Solomois River, the Amazon River, is a coffee with cream river. Just think about all those overpriced cold brews from Starbucks filled with cream. That's what it looks like. Very light, tannish color. The Rio Negro, the Black River, is really dark. It's clear, but it's a really dark, almost black-looking river. And where these two rivers meet is this scene that takes place called the meeting of the waters, where these two rivers meet, and where they meet, they don't mix. They actually flow side by side for approximately six kilometers down river, where you see these two very distinct rivers now flowing as one, but very distinct. One light, one dark. <clears throat> the reason these distinctions are so visibly prominent is because of the properties that make up each river. The Negro, the Black River, is clear, it's warmer, it's about 82 degrees, and it's slow moving. The Solomois or the Amazon that flows out of the Andes is chalky. Think cold brew with cream. It's chalky. It's 71 degrees and fast moving. You literally can stick your hand in the waters where they meet and feel the temperature difference as you go back and forth. These two rivers are so distinct in appearance that this phenomenon can at times be seen from space. Now, as I thought about these two rivers, I thought it was a helpful image to help us see what John is describing here in 1 John, what he's doing here. He's writing to encourage believers to continue on, to remain, to abide in the truth of what they've received. And as they do that, it will be clear whose they are, who they belong to, who they follow. He's writing to encourage them to remain in these unique properties that make up the true Christian and encouraging them to persevere. In John's effort to encourage this perseverance in what they know and thus be assured of their identity as children of God, he spends a lot of time distinguishing how children of God live in the world versus those who are not true children of God. Like the two rivers, he identifies these different properties that distinguish God's people from those who are not God's people. And one such property that he zeroes in on, as we saw last week and now again this week, is this, this idea of abiding, remaining, staying with Christ. See that there from last week's text and certainly into our passage this morning. And now, little children, abide in him. 
This is not a new word, but one he got from Jesus. We see that back in John's gospel. If you read John chapter 15, Jesus talks at length about abiding in him and he in you. <coughs> we see the many things that result in abiding. <coughs> you bear fruit, you see prayer answered, you prove your identity as children of God, you're filled with joy. But abiding in Christ is a key characteristic of being a child of God. It's the antidote for false belief and unchristian behavior. It's not enough merely to have heard and given assent to the message, given affirmation to the message of Christ. We must abide in this hope and as such, it will impact and shape the trajectory of our life. So then to abide in Christ, to remain, to stay, to abide means that we are to remain steadfast in the message about Jesus and live out the reality of what following Jesus then requires. That's what it means to abide in Christ. You're keeping, you're holding fast the truth of who Jesus is and all of its implications for your life. So pretty much everything about being a Christian. Abide. What I want us to see from this passage is how John unpacks for us several realities that, that comes with abiding in Christ. We're gonna see three things. We're gonna see the basis of abiding. We're gonna see the incentive to abide and certain blessings of abiding. Let's begin with the basis of abiding. I'm gonna steal some of Jeremy's sermon last week. If you just look very briefly back at verse 27, you see where John said, he's writing, he said, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. It's the Holy Spirit. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So we have this command in verse 27 and repeated again in verse 28 to abide in him. It's certainly likely that John's exhortation here is, 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 again, connected to what Jesus taught in John 15. But you see that and, in verse 28, how it's connected to what's previously been said. It shows this connection. There's something fueling this exhortation to abide in Jesus. It's not just something you pick up on your own and all of a sudden, okay, I'm going to start abiding in Jesus. No, there's something that fuels that, that enables it, that causes it. And that's what John's speaking of earlier. He's talking about this anointing that we've received, the work of the Holy Spirit that comes upon us and that reality of the Spirit that dwells in us. And how this anointing teaches them all they need to know. They don't need anyone else, namely the false teachers, to teach them. In other words, the basis of our abiding in Christ exists because of his message and work that already abides in us through the gospel. You don't need what the false teachers were peddling. You simply need to cling to the truth you've received already and remain in that. That's the basis of our abiding. The gospel, you've believed it, keep believing it. It's not complicated. I think sometimes many Christians are just looking for, okay, what's next? I believe the gospel, 
What's next? I'm looking for some new experience. I'm looking for some new thing. No, hold fast to Jesus. It's not complicated. The gospel is the gospel. It's what saved you. It's what will keep you. It's what will get you home. You don't need some new experience or some new thing. You need Jesus. Abide in him. Remain in him. Stay with Jesus. What John is saying. The basis of our abiding is the work of the gospel that abides in us. Keep fast to that. Hold fast to that. Again, this work of abiding is not something we have to figure out on our own. The fuel for it already exists in Christ, in the gospel, in the work of the Holy Spirit that's in us, this anointing we've received. Contrast that to the Antichrist. We've received the truth in the Spirit, whereas those who are Antichrist have not. They're opposed to Christ. They're outside of Christ. So then the simple point is live in a manner consistent with the truth that exists in you already by the work of the Spirit of God. It's a good reminder that abiding in Christ first requires that his word, his truth, his anointing, the Spirit, first abides in us. God's work in us through the gospel and his Holy Spirit is the basis, it's the foundation of our own abiding. We don't abide in Jesus and then get the Spirit or get the gospel. No, we receive that by faith, and now because of that, we are able to abide. That's the basis of our abiding. Number two, you see the incentive. There's incentives. Do you know that? Jesus gives us incentives. It's okay to talk about that from time to time. John's exhortation to abide in him has some incentive. There's real benefit for those who abide in Jesus. Notice two here. First one is this, you have confidence at his coming. Look at verse 28. Now little children abide in him, why? So that when he appears you may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. He points to the reality of Jesus' second coming, the fact that one day Jesus will in fact return and all of us will give account to him on that great and final day. And John has, and what John has to say is simple. Abide in him, remain in Jesus, stay with Christ so that when he comes, you're not one of those shrinking in shame when he does. You gladly welcome his arrival. You know, think about those of you with small kids, like little ones. You know what it's like when you come home, home after being at work all day. When they're little and they still think you're Superman or Superwoman, they will come running with open arms when you come home and they will greet you. That changes at some point, but when they're little, they still think you're everything. And when you come home, they come running into your arms receiving you, welcoming you, excited. That's kind of the picture here that we would have. We would not be shrinking in fear as if we've gotten in trouble during the day and wait till your dad gets home. No, we, we, we receive with, with open arms. That's the picture regarding all true believers when Jesus returns. Those who abide in him will be overjoyed at his appearing, will be confident that day. You're not gonna be scratching your head when you see Jesus saying, oh, is this gonna go well for me today? No, there'll be confidence. My Savior's coming back. I'm gonna receive him with joy and hope. 
Again, this is here is a reference to that great and final day when there will be a great division. Those who shrink in shame are those who are exposed in their unbelief. They will be rejected and cast into eternal judgment. Recall the Antichrist from earlier. And so the error then, the error for rejecting Jesus as Messiah will be seen fully for what it is on that day. The warning here is primarily for those who aren't believing in Jesus, therefore abiding in Jesus. And he's saying, don't be like them. Don't be like the Antichrist. Don't be like the unbeliever who will shrink in shame, realizing they've made a grave error when Christ comes again. This eschatological perspective is one that has significant relevance for what we believe and how we live today. How terrible it would be on that day when Jesus returns to stand condemned before him and finally see the truth for who he is after spending a lifetime either in unbelief or believing wrongly about him. So friend, if you're here today and you're not trusting in Jesus, if you're not trusting in Jesus as Savior, Lord of your life, if he was to come right now, you would be one of those who would shrink in shame at his appearing because of what you would, what you would, what you would be facing in judgment. And the, I think the implication is that don't be that one. Don't be like the one who would shrink in shame. I think, brothers and sisters, this too should give us a, a sense of encouragement and urgency in how we pray how we pray for unbelievers, how we pray for the work of the gospel in the world, how we engage the lost with the truth of the gospel. There should be urgency there. And even for your own soul, take heart. Because if you are believing in and abiding in Christ, then you will stand confident on that day. Like a child running into the arms of his mom or dad, you will receive Christ with open arms on that great day. So, one incentive to abide in Christ is so that you will have confidence at, that, at his coming. If you're not abiding in Jesus, there's no confidence. Number two, second incentive is having certainty as his child. Certainty as his child. Moving on, John continues from talking about our confidence as those who abide in Christ to the certainty we enjoy as children of God. In other words, he points that the, the point he develops in these next few verses is that not only children of God can live in what the abiding in him requires. There's something more. There's, there's an identity marker here. He begins with looking at how we become children of God. Look, he says in verse 29, if you know he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So notice that you may be sure. There's another sense of confidence and certainty that's being given here for those who abide. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It begins with looking at how we become children of God. Everyone who lives righteously has been born. For one to become a child of God, one must have received or experienced this, this 
concept we, we refer to as the new birth, being born again. John 3, Jesus and Nicodemus, we see that, ex, that, that exchange there, and we, we know that that's exactly what Jesus says there in John 3, verse 3 and following. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This new birth is the work, listen, this new birth that we're describing is the work of the Holy Spirit of God who gives us new eyes and the ability to see the truth of the gospel so that we respond in faith and repentance. All in one kind of thing. It's this work of the new birth, this work that the Spirit of God performs in us, resulting in faith in Christ. And John's point here is simple. Those who have received that new birth, those who have been born of God, these folks will abide in Christ and live righteously. Practice righteousness. This is one of the things that marks us off as children, gives us certainty as this child. The new birth precedes new behavior. New behavior does not lead to new birth. New birth leads to new behavior. That's what we're seeing here. Doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect. Doesn't mean you're gonna, gonna always be, be, be fruitful and faithful in everything you say, do, think. It means that the, the course of your life, the direction of your life, the, 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 the distinct characteristic of your life will be that which lends itself to righteousness progressively. So abiding in Christ identifies us with him. And as such, we're told the world will know that we're of him. Verse 1 of chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. This new birth results in a new disposition, new desires, new impulses. And all of these are things the world does not get. Like if the world gets you... <laughs> you probably shouldn't have confidence and certainty as a Christian. Like if the world gets you and affirms you and embraces you, like that's probably not a great thing. Now I'm not saying that you should go out there and just be an obnoxious jerk and try to tick off the world in any way that you can. Just following Jesus is gonna have, it's gonna, that's gonna happen. We're called to practice righteousness. And that righteousness is not something that the world appreciates, values, understands, or gets. And therefore, when we see that distinction being taken, that, that, that distinction happening between us and the world, we have that certainty as children of God. When we abide in Christ, we demonstrate our identity as his children. We demonstrate the loving work our Father undertook to give us this new birth. And then I want you to notice number three, the blessings of abiding in Jesus. We've seen the basis. It stems from the work of grace that we've received from God. We've seen a few incentives, confidence in the future, certainty in the present. Now John speaks to what I would call further blessings of abiding in Jesus. Several things here. Notice, when we abide in Jesus, first, it keeps us anchored in our future hope. 
In verse 2, John says that we are God's children now. Underline now. Circle it. We're God's children now. If you believe in Jesus, you're a child of God now, present. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. All of this is future language. We're God's children now, but we're not what we should be yet. There's this tension in our Christian walk. On one hand, we are already presently children of God by faith in Jesus. Yet on the other hand, the fullness of what God has called us to be is not yet our experience. Think about our building up there on the hill. We can say with certainty, that's our building, right? It's got our sign somewhere nearby. Trust me, it's coming out of our bank account. That's our building, but it's not finished. We've not taken up residence in it yet, have we? But it's ours. That's redeeming grace's building, but it's not yet complete. We can't legally take up residence there yet, even though it's ours. Same is true for us. We are a work in progress. Philippians 1.6, which is probably one of my favorite texts, Paul says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, when Christ appears. This work of grace that has started in you has a completion date, and that's not yet taken place. If some of you think you're complete, let me just tell you, you're not. Sometimes we act like we're complete. Hey, look at me. If you want to be like Jesus, I've got it all to get. No, none of us have that. Not at all. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. Notice this now and then language. Now I know in part, but then I will, fully, I, I will know fully as I am fully known. When Jesus returns, we shall be like him. Paul speaks of this in Romans as being conformed into his image. Being conformed into the image of Christ. That doesn't mean we become God, not at all. But it means we become like him in righteousness. We will reflect the perfect character of Jesus on that great day. This includes several wonderful things. When we think about that future hope that's ours, it's gonna include a glorified body. Philippians 3.21, Jesus says he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. I don't care how much CrossFit you do, your body isn't glorious. I don't have, you know, that's why the Instagram filters exist. You're just not all that you think you are. One day though, one day you will be like Jesus, glorious. Amazing. You have a glorified body. You will have a purified character. Sin will be no more. There will be no more struggle in the flesh. You will have a satisfied heart. Psalm 17, verse 15. The psalmist says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. We continue abiding despite our present sorrows and struggles because of our future hope. I like what Calvin said. He said, our desire for holiness should not grow cold because our happiness has not yet appeared, for the hope is sufficient. You know what he said? 
The fact that we have this future hope, that's sufficient. We've been told what we will be, therefore let's pursue holiness as we expect that day to come. Don't wait to find some kind of happiness that, that you're lacking in order to be holy, but rather pursue holiness because the hope that we have in Jesus, that's sufficient to get you there. Keeps us anchored. Abiding in Jesus keeps us anchored in our future hope. Number two, it keeps us fruitful in our present walk. In John 3, 3, John speaks of, 1 John 3, 3, John speaks of purification. Everyone who thus hopes in him is, purifies himself as he is pure. This word means simply free from contamination. Thus the natural fruit from all that's been stated is that we will be pure. Think about this, our new birth that he spoke of from the past and our confidence that he's spoken of in the future leads to a faithfulness in the present. This new birth that we've received past, this confidence that we have in our future leads to faithfulness in the present. Two quick things I want us to see about abiding in Christ that we need to keep front and central. Number one, we see this victory that's been secured for us. John is calling us as children of God to live lives that reflect that status. You're not living a life of righteousness to attain a status. You've been given a status as a child of God by faith and grace. Now we're called to live in accordance with that status. He contrasts those who make a practice of righteousness to those who make a practice of sinning. You can get all tripped up in this passage if you're not careful as a Christian because you think of sin. You think, well, one, thing's, one, one sin, I'm out. No. This language of practice, this, this, this practice is helpful. Practice of righteousness, practice of sinning. Those who make a practice of sinning, we're told, everyone, verse four, who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Those who make a practice of sinning, those whose lives are marked, characterized by a life of sin, not someone who sins, then confesses and repents. This is someone who has a disdain for the law of God, one who resolutely has turned from God's authority and has sought his own way. John's saying you can't be a true child of God and be that way. Like you can't be a true child of God and hate God's law. Have a disdain for it, turn your back against it. The reason a Christian can't have that is because we've been set free from lawlessness. Been set free. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. One who keeps on sinning has either seen, neither seen him nor known him. And then he goes on, talks about the practice of righteousness. He makes this contrast because he reminds us here of the victory that we have over sin. Two things Jesus does in regards to sin in the believer's life. Chapter three, verse five, he appears to take away our sins, removes them, no longer holds them against us. In verse eight, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We know that sin is our great enemy and Jesus comes to release us from the grip and control of sin by defeating the devil, by taking away sin. 
And John says, everyone who sins then breaks the law. Sin is law-breaking. And one who makes that a practice in the, of their lives is one who lives a life of defiant rebellion and disregard against God. Again, he's speaking specifically here of those who make a practice sinning, those who remain in a habitual, settled disposition of rebellion against God. If it was just one sin, 1 John 1, 9 doesn't make sense. He's talking about the Christian and the non-Christian. He's contrasting these two here. He's specifically speaking, again, of those, those whose lives are marked by one way or the other. And we know when Jesus came, he gave full pardon from our guilt. He came to release us from sin's penalty and power. And as such, those, the one who abides in him does not keep on sinning, meaning does not keep on making a practice of sinning. That's possible because not only did Jesus take away sin, he defeated the works of the devil. I like what Danny Aiken says, president of Southeastern Seminary. He says, sin's penalty has been nullified for the child of God and sin's power has been neutralized. Sin's penalty has been nullified, sin's power has been neutralized and dealt a death blow. So then, because of Jesus, we have a newfound freedom to say no to sin and sin no longer becomes the normal practice of our lives. It's there. It's not the domineering trait. We have a victory over sin because of Jesus. Number two, we have a righteousness that's empowered. A righteousness that's empowered. Due to all of this, the child of God will not make a practice of sinning. Those who do show that they are of the devil, not of God. That's what this text is saying. Look at verse seven, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So of Jesus, of God, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Look at verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? Because for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And then verse 10, by this it is evident. It's evident. This is not a secret, this is not a mystery. It should be evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We have a righteousness, friends, as we call, as, as people of God, we're called to, to practice righteousness. And that practice is an empowered practice. Because why? Verse 9, God's seed abides in us. This is not just kind of self-willing yourself uh, to be righteous. No, the only reason you're able to practice righteousness is because God's seed dwells in you and God's anointing is upon you, the Holy Spirit. That's why. So that even when you do sin, you go 1 John 1, 9, confess and, 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 and seek to put it to death, to put off, put on, that language we find. The point is that such a person, the one who has the seed of God in him, such a person won't and can't continue in a lifestyle marked by sin. Yes, you will sin, but what you seek to do with that sin indicates 
a true child versus one who isn't. And friend, that in, in a way is a great blessing. To walk in righteousness is not something just anyone can do. Only those who belong to Christ. Jesus did not just come to die for our sins. He came to defeat sin and to empower us to live lives that resemble his character more and more each day. You know, as I thought about this passage, this contrast between those who are of the devil and those who are of God, those who are true children, those who are not, that's what he's, that's what he's doing here. It's a lot like those two rivers in Manaus, two very different rivers, both in their composition and their identity. And friends, in this world, when it comes to people, there are two types of people in this world, the true believer, the true child of God, and those who are not. And as we live side by side each and every day in this world, it should be evident, obvious, what this passage is saying, which one you are. It should be obvious. And so I just ask you, brothers and sisters, is it obvious that you are a follower of Jesus? Are you abiding in Christ and does that show itself and set you apart as distinct in this world? Do the properties of Jesus, the, the, the properties that we have through Jesus in the gospel, do they reveal themselves through how you live and how you exist in this world? Is it obvious that you're a child of God? That's the question. So as we think about this passage, as we think about what John would say, he says, abide in him. If you want confidence and certainty, if you want to be fruitful and faithful, if you want to be bearing fruit and practice righteousness, abide in Jesus. Remain in him. Stay with Jesus. It doesn't mean it will be easy. It doesn't mean that you won't fall short. It doesn't mean that you won't be using 1 John 1, 9 a lot. But it does mean that there is confidence and certainty because of all that Jesus has done to make you a child of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for helping us see it and hear it, receive it. Lord, would you work in us what we need to be your children in this world? My prayer, Lord, is that you'd make each and every one of us individually a people who practice righteousness. Father, not a legalism, Lord, that we would not be setting up false standards of righteousness, but Lord, that we would seek a righteousness that comes from you. That we would practice it, that we would live it, that it would be the domineering the dominating characteristic of who we are and how we go about our lives. Father, would you work that in us? And Father, maybe that some are here this morning and that they're struggling, even in hearing this, and they don't seem to have confidence. Thinking of Jesus returning any moment, even maybe causes them anxiety and fear. So Lord, would you tend to their hearts this morning and help them to realize that they're Hope 
that their confidence, that their assurance does not rest in them, but it rests in Christ, and that they would cling to him in faith today. Father, would you strengthen the rest of us in that faith and help us to be your children in this world as we seek to abide in you. Thank you, Lord, that you've called us to that and that you've empowered us that we may do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.